0: Father, we're uh, so happy to be here. It's an incredible privilege. As the young people shared uh, earlier today, uh, you meet us here in a special way with your church. Thank you, Father, for your word, the revelation of who you are, your character, your works for us, your works done for your glory. We're excited to look into it, We're excited to talk about you, to listen about who you are. This already is a taste of heaven and we look forward to the day when we don't just have to talk about you, but we can see you face to face, where we can speak with you, where we can embrace you. Um, But for now, Lord, you have given us your precious word and we look forward to looking into its wisdom and your great love and faithfulness for us revealed in its pages. Help me, Lord, uh, the the preacher, um, to represent your word well, to speak clearly, and may we all be left with a sense of your presence and of your, uh, your righteousness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to introduce you to Mary Wagner, not quite Mark Zuckerberg, the Uh, character uh, of my last sermon, but Mary Wagner is nonetheless a very important person. Mary is a young woman who cares about women who are about to have an abortion. She believes that killing the young lives inside these women kills something inside their souls. So she has made it her practice to go into abortion clinics to counsel women about the decision they're about to make. She doesn't impose anything, she doesn't speak to anyone against their will, but she goes into these clinics to present them uh, with an option of speaking to someone about their decision. Of course, abortion clinics don't like this for a variety of reasons. It's bad for women, they say. I would point out that it's also bad for business. So they called the police on her. She was ordered to stay away from such clinics. If she didn't, she would face punishment. On March 21st of this year, 2012, Mary was arrested again for breaching the order to stay away from the abortion clinics. What did she do? She had brought roses to each of the women inside the clinic and, again, she made herself available to anyone who wanted to talk. After she was arrested, she had a bail hearing. Bail is the right to be free from prison between the time you've been arrested and the time of your trial. You're presumed to be innocent, so usually you are given bail. There's no reason to keep you in prison unless you have a really long criminal record or you're accused of doing something really violent. Mary was denied bail for bringing roses into the clinic. She spent three months in prison awaiting her trial. At trial, uh, a judge found her guilty. Uh, It wasn't a very hard decision to make, and uh, it came to sentencing. On sentencing, Mary's lawyer and the prosecutor agreed that the three months that she had already spent in prison was enough of a sentence, and they said she should be let go. Judges almost always agree with these kinds of joint submissions, but this judge didn't. At the sentencing hearing, the judge said this to her, you can sit in jail if that's the only way to protect people. This is an extraordinary waste of resources. Get a grip. You don't get it, do you? What's the rule of law? You're required to abide by it. You've lost the right as a citizen to be anywhere near an abortion clinic or to speak to an employee. You're wrong, and your God is wrong. You have complete contempt. There is a right to abortion in this country. You don't have a right to cause abortion-seeking women extra pain and grief the way that you do. This happened in Toronto. The judge then sentenced her to a further three months in prison. Six months in total, half a year in prison, cut off from her family and friends, sleeping in a cell, denied the freedom to live according to her convictions. All this for handing out flowers and caring about women who, have, who face a difficult choice. What's wrong with this picture? There's no doubt that Mary had breached the order to stay away from the abortion clinics, and the judge was right to find her guilty. But when the judge imposed the sentence on her, he used a twisted kind of judgment, a judgment that is based on irrelevant factors. Let me try to explain this phrase. When something is irrelevant, it has nothing to do with the thing that is being related to. Say you don't like one of the songs that we sing during worship. You judge the song as being a poor one, and you tell the person sitting next to you, I don't like that song at all. That person asks, why? Is it because it's too slow or too fast? Is it because the chorus is boring? Is it because there's not enough violin? All these things could be valid reasons not to like the song. But you reply, no, it's not any of those things. Then why don't you like it, your neighbor asks. I don't like it because Josh Nineber is sweating too much. (laughs) The fact that Josh Nineber is sweating too much has nothing to do with the quality of the song. It's completely irrelevant. In the same way, Mary's judge was given the duty of judging, but instead of a song, he was judging Mary. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of his job. But there is something wrong with the reasons he had for judging her the way that he did. The judge gave Mary a harsher sentence because he completely disagreed with her religious beliefs. You're wrong and your God is wrong, he said. But what did her beliefs have to do with assessing how blameworthy her conduct was? Nothing at all. The Bible gives a name to this kind of judgment. It calls it partiality. More importantly, it calls partiality a sin. Today, we're going to look at James chapter 2, as Pastor Tim mentioned. Chapter 2 can be divided into two parts. The first part looks at a specific problem that Christians have when it comes to acting out our faith, which James focuses on the problem of partiality. The second part looks at the broader, more general problem of not acting out our faith. James calls this problem dead faith. It's like the first part looks at the specific problem of car accidents caused by drunk driving, and the second part looks at the broader problem of alcohol abuse in general. Drunk driving accidents are a result of alcohol abuse. In the same way, partiality is the result of dead faith. But unlike the problem of alcohol abuse, the remedy is not AA meetings or harsher criminal penalties. The remedy for both partiality and dead faith, the symptom and the cause of the problem, is the gospel. So let's look at James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality To one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Oops. So, the concept of partiality has ancient roots in the Old Testament. Thanks, Ron. Various passages of the Old Testament clearly denounce partiality by judges when it comes to resolving disputes. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 17, for example, God appoints judges and gives them several instructions, including the following... You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In this verse, the Bible warns against two kinds of partiality. Partiality because of the greatness or smallness of someone, and partiality uh, because one party threatens the judge. God knows that judges are prone to believe the great and doubt the small, rather than consider each side fairly. God knows that we're tempted to show partiality towards the rich and the great and partiality against the poor and the small. God calls this kind of justice perverted later in Deuteronomy. So James, in a way, is reminding his readers about this important principle, uh, but he he takes it outside of the courtroom context and applies it to everyday life. In verse 1, James tells normal, everyday Christians to show no partiality as they hold the faith in the Lord Jesus. The command to be impartial no longer applies to judges in a courtroom, but to everyone wherever we are. Partiality is an evil that all people must avoid. But how does this work? How do we judge people? How do we judge people based on irrelevant factors? James is a very practical writer. I love this about him, and it's one of the reasons why we're going through James. We want to focus on on things that we can apply, ways that we can apply the gospel. So he provides an example to illustrate uh, immediately following this broad statement of show no partiality with this story. Uh, In verses two and three, there are three characters in this illustration. A rich man, characterized by a gold ring and fine clothing, a poor man in shabby clothing, and the church. Now, this illustration is set in the context of your assembly, or literally, your synagogue. The synagogue was and still is the center of Jewish community gatherings, and James was using the word here to apply to gatherings of Christians. More specifically, James is talking about newcomers to the church and the reception that they receive, I think this is something that we can easily relate to as our leadership often encourages us to greet newcomers. James here is tar- targeting a specific problem, and that is the problem of selective greeting. The rich man receives a fine welcome and the place of honor to, to sit. Perhaps in our church, that, that would be the table closest to the food. In contrast, the poor man is largely ignored and told to stay out of the way. Stand, stand over there in the corner. Some people even treat the poor man like their slave. So how is this an example of partiality? Remember that partiality is judgment based on irrelevant factors. So this tells us two things about James's story. One, it's an example of judgment. And two, it's an example of judgment based on irrelevant factors. So first, the story is one of judgment. The church was judging each man, even though this wasn't a court setting. Of course, this isn't the kind of judgment that takes place in a court where you're concerned with guilt or or not guilty, or what punishment that person deserves. The kind of judgment that James is talking about is judgment of another person's value or worth. It's the kind of judgment that takes place in a shopping mall. Shopping, believe it or not, is an exercise of value judgment. Every shopping trip involves thousands of value judgments, Some items you judge as not valuable and are completely ignored. Those are the things you barely see and you don't remember walking by at all. Other things are valued, but they cost more than you think they're worth. Lastly, some items are priced just right, and you go ahead and buy them. This entire process is an exercise of value judgment. To come to your value judgment, you apply a standard of judgment like necessity, practicality, and beauty. Do I need Toothpaste, yes. Okay, I'll buy it, especially if it's on sale. Uh, what, what, uh, what, What would make life a little bit easier or tasks a bit faster to do? What would make me look good? James is saying that we can judge our fellow believers the same way that we judge items in a shopping mall. Whether we ignore them or pay special attention to them depends on how much value we give to them, and that, how much value we give them, depends on the standard that we apply Have you ever used shopping mall justice to judge someone else's value? I think we all have. Some people do, based on uh, the standard of skin color. We call this racism. You're black, you're not worthy of me talking to you. Oh, you're Chinese, you must be really smart. Other uh, Other people judge based on gender. Some call this sexism there are many different standards that we can apply to judge the value of others. I want to focus on two of them. The types of standards we use uh, often vary by culture. Nina was telling me the other day that people in the Philippines uh, value politicians and celebrities most highly. This is because Filipinos are strongly uh, attracted to star power. In Canada, I think we tend to find more reasons to laugh at such figures than respect them. That's the reason I think that tabloid magazines are so popular. In contrast, Canadians seem to value uh, the amount of money that you can make the most, your earning potential, your net income. Um, So we look highly upon doctors, lawyers, successful businessmen, etc. I used to tell people that I wanted to be a pastor or a missionary. This was usually met with quizzical looks or confused tilts of the head. Why would you want to be a pastor? You have good marks in school. (laughs) Now, when I tell people I'm a lawyer, I'm amazed at how many times people say, oh, or wow. It may be because I still look like I'm 18 years old and I'm (laughs) too young to be a lawyer. Who knows? In the end, though, this is shopping mall justice. People see the big, shiny lawyer and want to take him home. But does my profession really say anything about my value? Perhaps the most universal standard used to judge someone's value is beauty. Numerous studies have been done on the difference that beauty can have on our perception of that person. It can have a big impact on who gets hired when there's multiple people competing for one position. It definitely has a big impact on who marries into the wealthy families. But think about this. Say two children have a temper tantrum. One is really cute and the other one not so much because all children are cute in their own way. With the cute one, uh, or say both children have a temper tantrum. Uh, with the cute one, our first reaction to the tantrum might be, aw, she's learning how to communicate her feelings. She's a smart one. With the not-so-cute one, our first reaction might be, why can't she just tell us what she wants? There are going to be some serious anger management issues with that child in the future. We judge people all the time based on their beauty. So this leads us to the second thing we learn about James's illustration. Uh, from the definition of partiality, all of these worldly standards, career success, wealth, beauty, are completely irrelevant to the judgment of another person's value. In James's illustration, the church judges the rich man as more valuable than the poor man. They give the rich man a place of honor and treat the poor man literally like dirt, <clears throat> like something that is just in the way. They come to this judgment because they use the standard of wealth to judge value. Oh, look at him. He's driving a BMW and wearing a designer suit. He's so attractive and successful. Those are the kinds of people we want in our church. He will be such a good role model for our children, and other people in the community might be more interested in coming to church if they see if if they see people like him attending. Let's make sure he gets a warm welcome. But oh, look at him. He takes the bus and it looks like he's wearing clothes from Value Village. He also smells. He's probably homeless and has a criminal record. I'm not sure if I want my children to be around someone like that. Let's ignore him and hope he goes away. By calling this type of thinking partiality, James is saying that the standard used by the church in his illustration to judge the two men, the standard of wealth, is completely irrelevant to their value. It's as irrelevant to their value as Josh Nineber's sweat is to the quality of a worship song. It's as irrelevant to their value as a child's beauty is to her potential. It's as irrelevant to their value as Mary Wagner's religion was to her criminal liability. Okay, you ask. So the church was being partial in their judgment of the two men's value. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Look at verse four. James calls such thoughts evil. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let me give you three reasons why partial judgment is evil. First, partial judgments are unjust. There's nothing wrong with judging someone's value, provided that it's fair. For example, we as Christians are supposed to judge God as most highly valued We're supposed to judge our fellow Christians as more valuable to us than non-Christians because they're children of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to take care of them first before we care about others. Partial judgments, however, are not fair or just since they take into account things that should never be taken into account. This corrupts the judgment and leads us to improperly judge another's value. The second reason why such thoughts are evil is contained in verses 8 and 9. They say that partial judgment amounts to a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. The church in James's illustration was not showing love to the poor man by judging his value based on the fact he was poor, and they failed to fulfill what Jesus described as the second greatest commandment next to the command to love God. The third reason, and I really want to highlight this one, It's the most significant one, in my opinion. (laughs) And it leads to a very important application for us. Partiality is rooted in idolatry. The church in James's illustration judged the poor man as inferior to the rich man because the rich man possessed the things that they value most, wealth. Any value judgments we make will be guided by the things that we value most. Let me say that again. Any value judgments we make will be guided by the things that we value most. If we value intelligence most, we will judge others according to their education. If we value beauty most, we will judge others by their looks. If we value money most, we will judge others by their wealth. Now, the things we value the most is another way of describing the things that we worship. The old English word for worship was actually worth the ascription of worth to someone or something. When we worship God, we are expressing to ourselves, to others around us, and to God, that he he is worthy, that he is valuable to us. We cry out, you alone are worthy to be praised. That's the heart cry of worship. But the human heart is prone to value other things more than God. We we can get more excited about iPads and cars than about God's love for us. We can spend more money on clothes and comforts than we do on the mission of sharing the gospel. The way we spend our money often reveals how much we value God compared to how much we value other things. If we value things more than God, we have committed idolatry. So James here is giving us another way of diagnosing idolatry. The standard that you use to judge another person's value, whether it be their education, wealth, or beauty, their profession, any other worldly standard, that represents the thing that you worship. That represents the thing that you value most. It represents the idol of your heart. This is the true evil of partial judgment, for it reflects a heart that values created things more than the creator himself. So what is the remedy for such evil thoughts? Here at Sovereign Grace, we talk about how the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins to make us right with God, is not only the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. We believe that the gospel is not only the basis upon which our sin's guilt is paid before God, but it is also the basis upon which sin's power over us is defeated. James says exactly this. The remedy he proposes for the evil of partial thinking is the gospel. Look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? In other words, James is saying, how can you look down on your fellow believers? They're heirs of the king, beloved princes and princesses of God's eternal kingdom. They are most valued by God. The fact that they look poor in this world and are judged to be poor in this world is completely irrelevant to their value. Notice that verse 5 doesn't simply say that we should honor the poor because they somehow possess greater faith than the rest of us. Instead, it says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. We're to value the poor not because they are worthy on their own merits, but because God has made them worthy. He is the one who has given them great faith, and he is the one who has made them heirs of the kingdom through his son's work on the cross. This is the standard that we're we're to use in judging the value of others. Instead of looking at people's beauty, we're to look at the faith that God has given them Instead of looking at people's position in the worldly hierarchy of success, we're to look at the position that God has given them in his eternal kingdom. This is gospel-minded thinking, and it is what we need to judge others rightly without the evil of partiality. So let's pause here and think about some ways to apply what we've discussed so far. Each of you should think about the types of people that you notice, whether it be at school, at work, in your neighborhood, or at church. Who catches your eye? Who impresses you the most? Who are you inclined to pay special attention to? Then think about why. Why do they catch your eye? If it is anything other than their faith or the godliness that they have from God through the gospel, then I urge you to pray about whether this is an idol in your life. Think, of, think on the gospel and reflect on whether the things you value in those people have value in God's currency of value. Next, think of the people you don't notice. This is harder because they're the kinds of people that don't get a second thought from you. You don't notice them. Maybe you could think of the types of people who are generally ignored, perhaps seniors, people who are overweight, kids who are quiet or shy or don't do well in school. If they're Christians, remember that God has chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Remember that God highly values them. And if God highly values them, make efforts to treat them according to their value. If they're not Christians, remember that the gospel and the gospel alone can give them true and lasting value. I hope that would encourage you to share the gospel with them. Lastly, think about the value that you give to yourself. We don't just judge others based on irrelevant factors. We also judge ourselves that way. Maybe you think you're a failure because you're not doing so well in school, or you don't have a very well-paying job, or you don't look like the models on the covers of magazines. In this passage, God is saying to you, who cares? Those things are irrelevant to your value. Do you not know that I have chosen you to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You are not valuable because of anything you possess. You are not lacking in value because of anything you don't possess. You are valuable because God has given you value through the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He gave you his son, and he has given you your value. Through the gospel, you are most highly cherished by God, and that gives you more value than all the riches and beauty in the world. Now we get to the second half of the chapter. This passage has generated much controversy and debate over the years, much of which goes beyond the purposes of this message that I'm preaching today. But I just want to provide some brief comments on it and show how it's relevant to James' message on partiality. The fundamental pillar of our faith is that we believe that we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It means that when God judges you, he declares that you are perfect and fit for entry into his kingdom. But everyone here would acknowledge that we are not perfect. We've all sinned and continue to sin by ourselves we cannot meet god's standard of perfect righteousness to earn the reward of heaven so how can god the perfect judge declare us righteous the answer is that god does not judge us by whether we are perfect or not but rather on whether his son was perfect or not god sent jesus into the world to be our substitute he died for our sins to pay our penalty and he lived a perfect life so that his righteousness would be credited to us When God now looks upon us in judgment, he does not see our sins they were paid for on the cross. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Jesus given to us. This incredible gift is available to those who acknowledge that they cannot justify themselves and place their faith in Christ instead. We are justified by faith alone because it is faith, not works, that connects us to God's gift of salvation. We are justified through grace alone because we don't deserve God's gift. It is given to us completely by his abundant generosity. Finally, we are justified in Christ alone because it is in him, and him only, that we can receive the gift of salvation. This is what we call the gospel, and it's the heart of our faith. So now let's turn back to our passage. Verses 14 to 18 of James chapter 2 seem to fly in the face of this pillar of our faith. Verse 24 seems to state the contradiction most clearly. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? The answer to this question is not an easy one. We could discuss it for hours and still have room for debate. I'm just going to give you one explanation that has convinced me. James comments about works in this passage, verses 14 to, uh, to 18 arises in the context of a discussion about faith. He uses works to say something about faith. It's not the other way around. He doesn't use faith to say something about works. Specifically, he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, in verse 20, he says, faith apart from works is useless. Lastly, in verse 26, he says again that faith apart from works is dead essential focus is on faith not works so what do works tell us about faith they tell us that if works are absent then faith is useless or dead faith is dead if it does not have works so consider this is dead faith true faith yes it is faith but only to the extent that we would say that a dead human is still human no one would doubt that the dead person however, is missing something fundamentally characteristic to what it means to being a human, life. A dead human is human because it resembles a human and shares the same genetic material as a human. But at the same time, it falls short of what essentially characterizes humans, the ability to speak, empathize, create, worship, love. It's human without really being human. Or you can think about it this way. Having faith without works is like having a pet dog that's dead. You carry the dead dog around, but its presence actually makes no difference in your life or the lives of others. You can push it and prod it, but it never responds. Do you have a pet dog? Yes, but not really. If you have faith without works, do you have faith? Yes, but not really. The problem then is not that works are absent. The problem is that faith is dead. How do you make a dead man love? It's not by bringing him to birthday parties or sitting him at a restaurant to have dinner with his wife. If missing works were really the problem, then such actions would remedy the problem. The problem, however, is not the missing works themselves, but the fact that the man is dead. Tagging works onto a dead man does nothing but make people throw up in disgust. In the same way, the problem with dead faith is not the absence of works. The problem is that faith is dead. Tagging works onto dead faith accomplishes as much as tagging works onto a dead man. The remedy for dead faith is not works. If we're lacking in works, the solution is not to simply do more works. The remedy is life for our dead faith. Life, not works. A living faith will produce works. As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. Works are the necessary product of true faith. So how does true faith come about? It comes from hearing the promises of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to help us respond to those promises with faith. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ, the Bible, is the only way to get life to your faith. If you want to do good works but you feel that you just can't, don't just try harder. Don't bring a dead man to a birthday party. Instead, drink this in. Read it every day. Meditate on it. Let it fill your mind and your heart and pray that the Holy Spirit would use it to bring life to your faith. Let's pray. Father, we are... uh, Convicted by the sin of partiality, a sin that uh, we don't often think about and it's so subtle. It so subtly pervades our thinking. Um, But you've clearly taught us here in this passage, in your precious word, uh, that that's not how we judge the value of others. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the remedy for this problem that is the gospel. The gospel that gives us all our true value and not value based on worldly things that pass away. We pray, Father, for your grace in helping us to treat others according to the way that you value them and not the way that the world values them. And thank you, Father, for your promise to give life to our dead faith through your word. We pray, Father, that we would highly cherish your word, that it would have a life-giving effect on our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.